hottest of takes for you this evening. I'm going to start with Kevin Durant, who we all know he wants out of Brooklyn, but he is really pushing to get out right now. Um, it was revealed this week uh, that KD met with Nets owner Joe Tsai over the weekend and basically gave the team an ultimatum. Uh, Durant basically said, either it's me or GM Sean Marks and Steve Nash, the head coach. And you can't really blame him for the GM and the head coach performance in Brooklyn hasn't been great. We all know about the Ben Simmons kerfuffle trading him for James Harden. Ben, ben Simmons wasn't even available for the postseason. And Steve Nash was just completely outcoached in the playoffs, going up against Celtics head coach Ime Udoka, a rookie head coach. And really... KD just wants out, and he's doing everything he can with the little leverage that he has. And, you know, like every bad boyfriend or girlfriend, he's giving his team an ultimatum. We'll see if it works. I'm skeptical. Um, but, understandably, the Nets are being very picky about who they're going to deal KD for. They've gotten a number of offers, some fairly generous offers for many teams, including the Boston Celtics, which, in my opinion, is the best deal. But... The longer this drags on, and the more Durant causes a distraction for the Brooklyn Nets, the more it's going to lessen his value as a player, which means the Nets are not going to get as much in return. Now, KD doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about that one bit. He just wants out, and he doesn't care if the Nets get a big return or or not. Um, doesn't matter to him. He just wants to be, you know, he could play in Toronto or New Orleans. It really doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, with KD's age, his injury history, his growing reputation as both a distraction in the media and in the locker room, it's not really a great look for him um, with providing the Nets this ultimatum. And Brooklyn is not getting the value that they thought they were going to get. So the Celtics basically offered Brooklyn, hey, we'll give you J Jalen Brown, we'll give you our uh, backup point guard, Derek White, and maybe a first-round draft pick, and that's it. Well, the Nets wanted either, uh, they wanted two out of four, ideally three out of four from the Boston Celtics. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and Robert Williams. They want at least two of those guys. And Boston's not going to do that. It's just not worth it for them because they're going to be giving up, you know, their main core for a player that if he goes down, the Celtics are no longer a playoff team. So Durant's doing what he can here, and he met with the met with the Nets owner, and he said, hey, it's either me or the GM and the head coach. I'm not happy with the direction of this organization. And the owner, Joe Tsai, over the weekend uh, basically went to Steve Nash and to the management and said, hey, I'm on your side. I'm not going to... I'm not going to give in to player demands, and he doesn't have to. Look, I mean, the Nets, at the end of the day, can just say no to KD, and I don't know why people don't talk about that enough. They can just say no, and KD's stuck being there. That's essentially what the Green Bay Packers did to Aaron Rodgers last year, and it ended up actually working out just fine. But KD is really pushing. I don't remember Aaron Rodgers giving Green Bay an ultimatum like KD did there. And, you know, the Nets are also trying to unload Kyrie Irving, um, who just re-upped his contract. He never demanded a trade or anything. Um, but Kyrie has been a thorn in the side of that organization for a little while. And clearly this whole KD-Kyrie thing in Brooklyn has not. I guess the real question here is, if Kevin Durant doesn't get what he wants and the Brooklyn Nets do not trade him away, what will he do? Will he hold out of training camp? Will he hold out even longer and refuse to even play? It could get very messy. And look, 
with the way that organizations run and with KD's demand, I haven't heard of a player giving an ultimatum to a team owner like this, but that's just how much power star players in the NBA actually have. You know, there's only, what, 11, 12, 13 players on an NBA roster, and then, you know, two or three of those guys tend to get most of the salary. So players in the NBA, at least the stars, have a lot of pull. So he's using the little bit of pull that he has um, to get traded away. I'm not sure it's going to work out for him, but if it doesn't, then what does KD do? Does he just refuse to play altogether, or does he suck it up and play another season with the, with the Brooklyn Nets? I mean, he's under contract until, I think, 2025-26, so he's there for a little while now. And, you know, I... I I could see the Nets repairing this if they can, like the Packers did with Aaron Rodgers, and it all works out. And look, the Nets aren't going to be in any better position if they get rid of KD. I mean, you still have Kyrie Irving, you still have Kevin Durant, you still have a fairly deep roster. Um, the, the problem with the Nets in the playoffs is they just don't have the defensive talent to compete with you know, some of the better offensive teams in the league, and, and more importantly, some of the more physical teams in the league, like Boston. They really were just bullied down low. Um, which we, <laughs> was a little different for Boston when they moved on to, you know, Milwaukee and they had to deal with Brooke Lopez instead of, you know, whatever the Nets had down there. Um, so, look, I, I'm not sure what KD's going to do here. Um, ideally, he forces a trade, and, you know, I, I just don't know because the Nets, the Nets aren't going to get a better offer than they've already received. You know, I, I, again, the Jalen Brown deal, is probably the best they're going to get. Jalen Brown, Derek White, and a draft pick. Maybe the Celtics throw in another first-round pick for a future season to help the Nets save face a little bit. But if the Nets are really driven to get rid of KD, they have to do it, and they have to do it now, because otherwise it's only going to get worse. His value is only going to go down. And if KD continues to push and not play in, in uh, the preseason and going into the regular season and just chooses not to play at all, then... I mean, what are the Nets going to do? So you might as well trade him at this point. See if you can get Jalen Brown and, and a little bit more talent out of Boston. And, and you know, I, as a Celtics fan, I'd love to see that happen. I was pushing for Jason Tatum for KD straight up. No other Celtics fan wants them to do that uh, because Tatum is so young still and KD's in uh, the twilight of his career. But I just don't see how Brooklyn gets anything better than they... You know, I, I know Miami... I think they had a deal with Jimmy Butler and uh, Adebayo uh, or something like that, a, a package with, with some of their better players, but it really wasn't enough, and they, they really couldn't offer what Boston could. Maybe Phoenix could offer something good. Toronto, perhaps, could offer a better deal. New Orleans, those are three teams that I think have the most pull to be able to, to deal for Kevin Durant. Uh, but the longer this goes on, the more it drags out the worse it works out uh, for the Brooklyn Nets and the lower KD's value is. And KD understands that, and he's using the little bit of leverage um, that he has uh, to, to try to make this deal happen. But man, he has been a royal pain in the ass, that's for sure, um, along with Kyrie Irving. So, um, you know, <laughs> as much as I would love to see KD play in Boston as a Celtics fan, um, he's caused a lot of distractions with, you know, with Golden State, you know, him wanting a little bit more, him wanting to be the guy, even though he literally won an MVP while he was there. Um, he, he, he knew it was Curry's team. He went to Brooklyn. It hasn't worked out. And, you know, if he goes to another organization, what could that bring late in his career, especially if he gets injured and the fans start turning against him, which is a real possibility in my opinion. So it is mid-August now. Um, and that means it is time to gear up 
for fantasy football. Um, be sure to check out my article on uh, breakingbrad.substack.com. Uh, Five fantasy football mistakes to avoid in 2022. And this is some, a little bit of unconventional advice um, heading into fantasy football. You know, a lot of people say, all right, uh, you know, don't draft a quarterback until like the fifth or sixth round. Uh, you know, go, go stack up running backs early, stack up receivers early. There aren't a lot of great consistent receivers. I think you're going to find some of these tips a little bit different from what people are offering. And I'm going to start out the first tip. I'm going to give five here. Avoid the Josh Allen trap. Now, look, you end up with Josh Allen. Don't complain. He's, he's the best quarterback in the NFL, arguably, right now. He's the odds-on favorite to win the MVP, and probably the odds-on favorite are the Buffalo Bills to win the Super Bowl. Um, so you're not going to go wrong drafting Josh Allen. Unfortunately, because he had such a great year last year, uh, a lot of people are going to want to take him in the first round or like early in the second round. And drafting a quarterback that early, at least in today's league, doesn't make a lot of sense when it comes to fantasy football. And I'll tell you why. Because there are so many great uh, um, quarterbacks out there right now that if you're going to settle for Patrick Mahomes, I'm not, I wouldn't really call, call it settling if you draft Patrick Mahomes, but let's say you, you want to wait a little bit. You can get Mahomes. You can get Aaron Rodgers. You can get Tom Brady. You can get Justin Herbert or Kyler Murray. You're not going to be downgrading significantly if you wait another round or two because I guarantee if you're in a 12-team draft, one of those guys is going to pick Josh Allen early. He's going to say, wow, Allen jumped off the page. He crushed my team last year. This guy got him. I don't want him to get him again. I want Josh Allen on my team. I'm going to spend the sixth pick on Josh Allen. Don't do it. Bad idea because you're going to miss out on being able to draft one of the better running backs, one of the better receivers, um, or one of the better tight ends, which brings me to my number two fantasy football mistake to avoid. Do not wait on drafting a tight end. There is literally one valuable tight end in all of fantasy football, yes, you're going to have lots of people talking about George Kittle, Darren Waller. Wow, I'm really stacked. I got Kyle Pitts on the roster. Don't wait. Even if it's the first overall pick, and this is controversial because, you know, there's Taylor in Indianapolis. There's Christian McCaffrey. There's a lot of great guys that everyone wants to pick first overall. If you pick Travis Kelsey with the number one overall pick, you will not regret it. You know why? Because it is a significant drop-off when you get to the number two tight end there. And if you're not lucky enough to get Kyle Pitts, Mark Andrews, George Kittle, or Darren Waller, then it's a huge drop-off. It's basically hit or miss. It's, it's a goose egg every other game. So, as mentioned with the Josh Allen comparison, the high end, a high-end fantasy football player just is not that valuable if there is a lot of depth at that position. There is no depth at all at the tight end position. Patrick Mahomes loves Travis Kelsey. He gets tons of targets every game. He doesn't get injured often, at least relative to, say, you know, George Kittle. Um, and Tyreek Hill is no longer there, so he's probably going to get even more targets this season. So you cannot go wrong drafting Travis Kelsey. If you're not lucky enough to be able to get him in the first round, which I would highly encourage regardless of where you're picking, you have to get Kyle Pitts, Andrews, and maybe Kittle or Waller. Um, third or fourth round. Um, other than that, you're ba it's basically a crapshoot. You're just guessing and hoping that some other team has a has a tight end that hits. Hoping that you know Hunter Henry, who's going to get targeted 
twice a game is going to continue to score touchdowns every game like he did in the first half of last year. That's not something reliable. Um, go with Kelsey early. He's the only guy that's valuable at that position. And because of that, look, finding a good running back, finding a good receiver is is hard, but it's not as hard as finding a good finding a good tight end. So even if you're missing out on you know uh, um, Christian McCaffrey, Taylor, some of those better players, you're not going to go wrong drafting Kelsey. Number three, do not draft players who aren't consistent. And this, I think, is a little known fact about fantasy football. We've all been there. You have 140 points one week, and then the next week you score like 40, and you're like, what the hell happened? Well, it's because you have Nick Chubb, who got, you know, 150 yards and two touchdowns one week, and then he got 20 yards on 10 carries uh, the next week. Pick a guy who is consistent, and there are ways that you know analytics measure for this. Um, I encourage you to go to fantasypros.com. They have a table um, where they list what they call quality starts, and it ranks all the draftable players by their week-to-week consistency. And I'll give you an example: Dalvin Cook, Joe Mixon, Nick Chubb, Austin Eckler, and maybe Najee Harris are all ranked in the top ten, top twelve of pretty much all the fantasy draft boards. Um, you pick one of those guys, it's going to be your first overall pick in all likelihood. If you pick Dalvin Cook, Joe Mixon, or Nick Chubb, they have a quality start a little over 50% of the time, which is good. But you can get Austin Eckler, who is, who, you know, is, is probably ranked below Dalvin Cook and maybe Joe Mixon and, and right around Nick Chubb. He has a quality start, at least according to fantasypros.com. 88% of the time. Najee Harris with Pittsburgh, 76% of the time. So that can make a big difference because you know going in week to week, hey, this guy's going to score at least 14, 15 points for me. He's reliable. He's not going to have a lot of single-digit games. If you can go go through your draft, because everyone's going to pick the flashiest names, but if you're able to have that fantasy pros table up while you're drafting players and say, okay, well, all right, this guy has a 70% consistency rating. Well, the other guy ahead of him who I could pick, who I really like, is only about 40%. Well, let me go with the 70% guy because I, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to be banging my head on the table week to week because he laid a goose egg or he only scored a couple of points. That's really important. And it's and it's also big at quarterback, too. I mean, I, I, Tom Brady usually has consistent starts. Josh Allen was really high last year. There are other guys that just aren't that way. Uh, you know, Kirk Cousins. Actually, I think Kirk Cousins might have been higher on that list. Uh, but be sure to check out that table, uh, fantasypros.com, list of quality starts, and that's really going to help your team. And, you know, you may not win because you'll lose against a team who scores 180 points, but you're going to be competitive that week, and you're going to have less of those weeks where you just, no one's showing up. Um, so consistency is important. Number four, your team is not set in stone. Please be aggressive, especially after week one of the fantasy football season. What makes the NFL so great is parity. The Cincinnati Bengals, they went 4-11-1 two years ago. They were in the Super Bowl last year. Had a couple of breaks, went their way. They would have won it all. Um, no one could have predicted Cordero Patterson would have been one of the best fantasy players last year. Debo Samuel, you could see, say the same thing. Um, luckily, you know, after week one of the fantasy season, you get a little bit of a sample on some of the surprises that you can't expect. So here are four things to watch out for um, that you should be very aggressive about very early in your season. If you, you're in one of those fantasy leagues where you you have like a, a cap, like 100 bucks on what you can spend on free agents, 
Don't be afraid to spend half of that after week one. But watch out for, for these four things. Rookie running backs who get a majority of their team snaps. Um, you know, you can kind of tell that from the preseason, but usually week one you see a guy who gets 60-70% of their snaps that you've never heard of. That's a guy you got to pick up in free agency and throw a lot of money at because he's going to be consistent week to week. Players that are suddenly playing two positions. I mentioned Cordero Patterson and Debo Samuel. Basically, receivers slash running backs. You're going to get twice the production from them. If you see a guy who's being used differently on a team that suddenly has a breakout game week one, don't be afraid to go after him. Mid-level receivers, um, getting a disproportionate number of targets. Um, a lot of that will have to do with you know the depth at the receiver position. So, you know, you, you see... You have a team that doesn't have a great receiving core. For example, the Baltimore Ravens, not quite as good at receiver as they were in years past. There may be one guy who gets a lot more targets there. Um, keep an eye on who that person might be, not just on the Ravens, but all around the league. Good person to go after uh, before week two. And then finally, quarterbacks with vastly improved offensive lines. Quarterback performance hinges on the offensive line. And it's no, very few people other than the folks at pro football focus pay any attention to o-lines keep an eye out you know if you start seeing quarterbacks with more time completing more passes and you know you're going wow you know, kirk cousins has suddenly took a leap well maybe it's because his o-line got better in the offseason so watch out for that because you may end up getting a quarterback steal that nobody even drafted um in the draft um so keep an eye out for that and number five don't just draft any kicker now the kicker position is not something you should really stress over but there is a strategy here beyond drafting Justin Tucker. So most fantasy football players wait until, you know, the final round to select their kicker. That's fine. You know, wait until the very end. You, you really shouldn't wait until the last three or four rounds to even consider your kicker. Um, unless you're in one of those leagues where people take kickers early. But even then, like, you know, don't waste it. You're going to have more players available. Um, but conventional wisdom is, hey, this team has a good offense. That means their kicker is going to get a lot of field goals. That is not always the case because what if that team scores a lot of touchdowns? You know, they go, Kansas City Chiefs rarely settle for, for field goals. They'll go for it on fourth down a lot. Um, or they just, you know, they're such a great offense. You know, they get in the red zone, they're going to score. Look for teams that have a solid offense, but not the greatest offense. And, and let me give you a reason why. The top three kickers in fantasy football last year were Daniel Carl Carlson of the uh, Las Vegas Raiders, Nick Folk of the New England Patriots, and Chris Boswell of the Pittsburgh Steelers. None of those offenses jumped off the page last year. None of those were top 10 offenses. I think the Patriots were top 10 in terms of scoring, but in terms of yards, they weren't even close. They were, they were like bottom middle, I think. Um, those were offenses that moved the chains, um, you know, picked up first downs, but they often had to settle for the red zone because they had trouble scoring. Those are the kickers you need to watch out for. I wouldn't even worry about the kicker, to be honest. These are professionals. They should be making their field goals. Most kickers do. Worry about the team. Is this a team with a mediocre to above average offense? Those typically are the kickers. Kickers on those teams are the ones that uh, um, score the highest in fantasy football. So... You know, if you can get Justin Tucker, great. He's the best in the league, but he's typically not going to be the number one kicker because he's not going to get as many opportunities. Although this year with the Baltimore offense, maybe he will. Maybe they will be one of those teams. Um, so uh, moving on uh, to uh, the Deshaun Watson news. Um, as we found out uh, last week, 
Watson was suspended for six games uh, by uh, a, a former uh, U.S. District Judge, Sue Robinson, uh, who did kind of an independent investigation uh, with, with the NFL. Um, this is a ESPN story. Uh, I really didn't expect Roger Goodell and the NFL to actually appeal that penalty into Sean Watson because you stop paying attention to it, keep it out of the news cycle, it goes away for public relations reasons. Sometimes it's best to ignore. But I think Roger Goodell might actually be doing the right thing here, which you know blows my mind because uh, you know I, as a Patriots fan, I am not the biggest fan of Roger Goodell. But uh, you know we all know how ridiculous the Watson suspension was, especially when you compare it to you know Calvin Ridley, who was going to miss the entire season with a suspension because he gambled. And you know sports gambling is bad, but it's a little different when you're betting on yourself, like Ridley did, um, or when you compare it to Josh Gordon, who missed like what eighty something games um, throughout his career for smoking marijuana, which he can now do legally under the new conduct policy. Um, Or, you know, Tom Brady, who was suspended four games for allegedly telling his ball boy to inflate football so the lowest threshold, and then they deflated throughout the game because it was cold and rainy. Six games for what Deshaun Watson did, accusations from 24 separate women from sexual assault, doesn't seem like a lot. I know he settled with 23 of those women, but the NFL found in their investigation that um, many of those were, you know, dangerous behavior. Um, they said this was one of the most egregious bat- patterns of behavior they've ever seen, and then they only gave him six games. It didn't make a lot of sense. Roger Goodell doing the right thing here. He's pushing for at least a one-year suspension. Not going to make Cleveland Browns fans happy, but probably the right thing to do. He says. We've seen the evidence. She was very clear about the evidence. She reinforced the evidence. Goodell uh, talking about um, district judge, former district judge Sue Robinson. There were multiple violations that were egregious, and it was predatory behavior. Um, so, you know, we're going to see what happens here. Um, you know, this is just a quick update. Uh, but uh, Robinson, if you want to read it, there was a 16-page report. Uh, that uh, you know ultimately led to the six-game decision, which is not consistent because the NFL has these strange kangaroo courts. Um, you know, in my opinion, I don't even think the NFL should be weighing in on this kind of stuff. I think it should be up to an actual court of law. But if you're going to have these kangaroo courts, you at least got to be consistent. Um, so Roger Goodell ultimately doing the right thing, pushing for a one-year-plus suspension for Deshaun Watson, and we'll see what happens. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if. Uh, the the suspension is increased to you know eight or ten games, but I think one year maybe I I think one year is the right amount, but um it, they're probably gonna find a happy medium there or they're just gonna say no six games is enough. Um, this guy is a two hundred and thirty three million dollar contract. Cleveland hasn't had a good QB in three decades. Too bad, and I I think that's that has to do with a lot of this because the Cleveland Browns spent so much money on Deshaun Watson that. Having him be suspended the first year of his career there um, in Cleveland, not going to be a great look for him, but probably ultimately um, the right decision. So Patriots training camp update. Um, just a, a quick recap um, to what's what's gone on uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, the first two weeks of training camp. Uh, basically, here's what happened. The Patriots, uh, Bill Belichick, has been wanting to change the offense 
for a very long time. He wants to modernize it. He's seeing what Kyle Shanahan's doing in San Francisco, what he did in Atlanta, what Sean McVay picked up on um, from Kyle Shanahan. Loves the crossing routes, loves these fast-paced offenses, loves the vertical game. He wants to modernize the offense for today's NFL. But Bill Belichick has had Josh McDaniels as the offensive coordinator for many, many years now, um, two separate stints, and Dante Scarnecchia, um, a very old-school offensive line coach, uh, who recently retired. Well, both of those guys were pushing back on Belichick, basically saying, uh, no, we know what works. We have Tom Brady. He's the best quarterback in the NFL. We've won a handful of Super Bowls. We're going to stick to this uh, you know, West Coast style, call audibles if necessary in the line of scrimmage, often run heavy offense. And we don't want to change anything because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, McDaniels is gone. He's now the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. Dante Scarnecchia is retired. And what happened this offseason, Matt Patricia became essentially the offensive coordinator. Patricia was the former defensive coordinator of the Patriots, went to the Detroit Lions, was fired after failing as a head coach there, um, said, hey, I want to focus on the offense, was hired as an assistant by Belichick uh, last season. This season, uh, heading in uh, to to training camp, he was named the offensive line coach. And then uh, was ultimately not named the offensive coordinator because Belichick doesn't like titles, but he's the de facto, de facto offensive coordinator, the play caller on the sideline, meaning the offensive line is not being coached like they have in years past when they had one of the greatest O-line coaches ever to, to, to coach the position, Dante Skarnecchia. So Belichick, understanding that, you know, Matt Patricia, um, the new QB coach Joe Judge, who was fired from the New York Giants, they are not in a position to say no to the greatest coach in NFL history. He's going to use this opportunity to change the offense. And it has not worked out very well um, two weeks into training camp. It has been a hot mess. And the reason why is because of the offensive line. Because the O-line is not being coached like they have in years past. Because they're running a new offense that they're not used to. Because they have personnel, David Andrews, Isaiah Wynn, um, Justin Heron, some of these other guys, um, Owenu. Uh, that really were designed for the old-school offensive line of the Patriots. And they're having a hard time adjusting. And when the Patriots are doing 7-on-7 in training camp, they're killing it because Devontae Parker is a legit number one receiver, and he's shown that in training camp. Tyquan Thornton, the receiver they drafted um, in in, um, the second or third round, he looks like he's the real deal. I mean, he's small. Uh, well, he's tall, but he's skinny, and uh, but he's arguably one of the fastest receivers to ever enter the NFL, set a record in the combine in the 40-yard dash. He's killing it. So, you know, they don't have any superstar receivers, but you have those two guys on top of Jacoby Myers, Nelson Aguilar, um, and uh, uh, Kendrick Bourne, and, and then the two tight ends, Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith, uh, a very good duo to have there. Johnny Smith seems to be taking a step up in training camp as well. When they're in seven on sevens, they're killing it. But the moment it, the offensive line is out there and they shift to 11 on 11, it's just been a disaster. And we saw that the moment um, they went up against the defense in pads, um, Mac Jones barely getting the football out in time, uh, relying on dinks and dunks and barely even able to complete those, often throwing into traffic. It hasn't been good. Well, as of Tuesday, things are looking a little bit better. Um, so uh, this is an article from uh, SI.com. Uh, the standout uh, was reserve tackle. I always have trouble with his name. Um, Yodney Kajust, 
let me know in the comments if I pronounced it wrong. He filled in for Isaiah Wynn, who uh, was their starting right tackle. Really kind of been a disappointment considering where they drafted uh, Wynn. Um, and uh, I guess he really stepped up, and uh, Michael Owenu um, was doing a better job. Cole Strange uh, was the rookie who they drafted in the first round. Controversial pick. Um, really pushing defenders around in the most recent practice, um, which is really helping the running game. Um, that's part of the reason they drafted him. Uh, so we're actually starting to see some progress there. I know there's been some opinions saying, hey, the Patriots should go back to doing what they did in the past. And look, they have a preseason game this Thursday. We're going to see exactly what that offensive line looks like, what the offense looks like as a whole in that new system. Perhaps they mix in some of the older elements with the new. Um, but it's going to be a work in progress. That's what training camp is for. But it's just been a disaster so far. So finally, the offense had a good practice on Tuesday. Um, I guess it got heated. David Andrews, uh, the, the team captain and center, uh, got into a fight uh, with Christian Barmore, who's been um, arguably the best defensive player so far in training camp. Really has made life difficult for the offensive line while they make these adjustments. Um, the defense looks great, apparently. Um, now, a lot of that might have to do with the offensive po offense's poor performance. Um, but we're starting to see the O-line come together, and really it's the running game that's been big. I mean, obviously Mac Jones hasn't had as much time to get rid of the football, and it's been frustrating for him. He, you've seen it in interviews because Mac, um, basically as a rookie, he stepped into training camp and was calling audibles and just beat out Cam Newton like it was nothing. It really just impressed everyone, and now year two in training camp, He's taken a lot of leaps. He's you know put on muscle. It sounds like his arm strength has improved. Um, he, we know he's a smart, disciplined guy, um, makes good decisions with the football, but he just hasn't had the time. So he's really struggled in training camp. Um, so uh, you know it, it's good to see that he's getting a little bit better protection. But really, the biggest adjustment has been with the run game. Damian Harris not getting anything. Ramondre Stevenson, um, all the running backs really, really struggling um, until today's practice. Um, so it's good that we're starting to see this. Um, you know, the Patriots have had to slow things down. They were they went from playing in pads to playing in shells, which when other teams are ramping it up, they were ramping it down, slowing things down, and trying to make those adjustments. Uh, really, we're struggling. And finally, we have a day where we can report the offense looks a lot better. So we'll see what happens on Thursday. Uh, they have a home uh, preseason game against the New York Giants. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Um, so that's it for this edition of Breaking Brad. We'll be with you later this week um, to recap exactly what the Patriots did uh, in their first preseason game and how that new offense is looking. Until then, see you later.